reading and turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. We'll continue in our reading of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I have gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. But you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you birds, livestock, and all the wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by flood waters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever, it, whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds. And I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on the earth. Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons and from them the whole earth was populated. Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his, father's, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both their shoulders and walked backward. They covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. 
he will be the lowest of the slaves to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slaves. Now Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So Noah's life lasted 950 years. Then he died. These are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the flood. Japheth's sons, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. Gomer's sons, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tagarma, and Javan's sons, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dudanim, from these descendants, the peoples of the coast and islands spread out into their lands according to their clans and their nations, each with its own language. Ham's sons, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Cush's sons, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'ama, and Sebekah, and Ra'ama's sons, Sheba and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and the great city, Kalah. Mizraim fathered the people of Lud, Anam, Lehab, Naphtu, Pathras, Kaslu, the Philistines came from them, and Kaftor. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Hath, as well as the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the Canaanite clan scattered. The Canaanite border went from Sidon going towards uh, Gerar, Gerar as far as Gaza and toward uh, and going toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zebolim as far as Lasha. These are, Ab- these are Ham's sons by the clans according to their languages and in their lands and nations. And Shem, Japheth's older brother, also had sons. Shem was the father of all the sons of Eber. Shem's sons were Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. Aram's sons, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Selah, and Selah, 
fathered Eber. Eber had two sons, one named Peleg, for during his days the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan, and Joktan fathered Almodad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Orphir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were Joktan's sons. Their settlements extended from Misa to Sephar, the eastern hill country. These are Shem's sons by their clans, according to their languages, in their lands and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their family records in their nations. The nations on earth spread out from these after the flood. And the chapter 11. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. These are the family records of Shem. Shem lived 100 years and fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. After he fathered Arpachshad, Shem lived 500 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Arpachshad lived 35 years and fathered Shelah. After he fathered Shelah, Arpachshad lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and fathered Eber. After he fathered Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and fathered Peleg. After he fathered Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and fathered Reu. After he fathered Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and fathered uh, Serug. After he fathered Serug, Reu lived 207 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years and fathered Nahor. After he fathered Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and fathered Terah. 
After he fathered Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Genesis chapter 9 through chapter 11, verse 26. Uh, now, with your Bible there open, turn to Daniel, the book of Daniel, this morning. And uh, we are pausing our exposition of the book of Daniel. And we're going to focus on how God is portrayed in the book of Daniel. What the book of Daniel says about who God is and what he does. And since we're in the midpoint of the book, you realize that now, we've completed the first six chapters. There's 12 chapters altogether. We're in the midpoint of the book. I thought this would be the appropriate time to tackle this subject. I mean, we could wait till the end of the study, but by the time we get to the end of the book of Daniel, everybody's going to be looking forward, wondering what's next. And so now seemed to be the right time uh, to do this. Now, we need to remember the theme of the book of Daniel. The theme of the book of Daniel is the most high rules over the kingdom of men. Okay, The most high rules over the kingdom of men. Let's say that together. The most high rules over the kingdom of men. Now, since God rules, it's an import, it is important to understand how he rules. By studying how God rules in the book of Daniel, we learn what to expect from God today as he is working out the plan that we see in the book of Daniel. You see, God has a plan, and he's working out that plan. And who he is and what he does is inseparably connected to his plan. So who God is what his character is, and what he does, his activities, is connected to the plan that he's made and he is working out. So let's pause for a word of prayer here and we'll get into our study. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that we have together as we look at your word. We pray that you would use your word to change us, uh, Lord, that you would bring things to light of our deficiencies and our weakness, and most of all, that we would see how great you are. And so we commit this time to you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I need to say a few cautions here when we think about God's plan. Oftentimes, when we think about God's plan, we think in a really big picture, a broad scope of God's plan. And we need to remember that when we think about who God is, what he's doing in accordance to his plan, that his plan in the book of Daniel is a very particular plan, very particular. And so when we see God superintending over his plan, it is this very particular plan that we must keep in mind. And so what is God's plan as revealed in the book of Daniel? In summary, it is God's plan for the Gentile nations and the nation of Israel. 
And so we have to be careful that we don't make that plan more than what the Bible says it is. Secondly, I want to mention a caution about God's plan for the believer. I hope you understand and believe that God has a plan for believers. And there's various ways that we see this plan. But I just want to use one example of how we can understand God's plan for us as believers by studying one word here real quick. Taking a look at one word, and that is the word predestination. Predestination. This is a word that can be scary to some people, can be intimidating, but it's a word that's often misunderstood and abused. Many use it as a synonym for the doctrine of election, but that's not what it is. That's simply not the case. The word predestination an election are two very different things. They're two different words, and the only thing you have to do is look those words up in the Bible, and you'll see the differences. Now, this word predestination that we're going to look at here briefly only appears six times in the Bible, so there's not a whole lot of work to do here. Six times in the Bible, and each time that it's used, it's speaking of a plan, a course of events in the life of someone with a special focus on the goal, the objective, or the end of the plan. And so, just like me, you can take your concordance and look this up in your Bible. Now, concordance, that's a pretty big sounding word, isn't it? Concordance. A concordance is nothing other than a list of words. A list, that's all it is, is a list of words. And an, an exhaustive concordance is a book. I should have brought one up here to show you, but it's a book. And it has a list of every single word in your Bible. Every word. And under each word, there's a reference to every place in the Bible where that word occurs. You know, you can do, now I'm on a rabbit trail... You can do an in-depth Bible study with just three things. Three things. So it's not a heavy investment. Three things. Good literal translation of the Bible, number one. So that's our base. That's what we're going to be studying. Number two, you get a concordance that matches your Bible translation. Now, if you've got a computer, if you've got a smartphone, you can get all that in the palm of your hand. It's real easy, real, and it's free. You can get it all for free. So you've got to have a literal translation of the Bible. You have, a, have to have a concordance. And then to that, we can add a dictionary of Bible words, a dictionary that not only gives us the English meaning, but it gives us the meaning of the Hebrew and Greek words behind English. And sometimes that comes with a concordance. It's all packed into one. And with those three things, you can do an in-depth Bible study. You, you can go as deep as just about anything you're going to read or hear out there. Now, back to the point I'm making here about predestination. This word predestination only occurs six times in the Bible. So let's look at these real quick. Turn to Acts uh, chapter 4 verse 28. Acts chapter 4 verse 28. By the way, this is the pre-message message. Okay? This is the pre-message message. Acts chapter 4 verse 28. 
Okay, we all know this because we studied the book of Acts not too long ago, and we, we got every part of it memorized. We know everything in the book of Acts, right? I wish that were true. I, I mean, I wish that were true of me and you. So Acts chapter 4, verse 28. It says here, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before. That's the word predestined. Your purpose predestined to be done. Now here... If we're looking at the context, we find that this is talking about uh, what the hand and purpose of God predestined to be done to Jesus Christ, namely his death by the hands of men. So it's part of God's plan. It's part of, he's revealing his plan here in the word predestined, his plan for Jesus Christ. And part of God's plan for Jesus Christ was that he would suffer and die by the hands of the Jews and Gentiles. It was God's plan to send his son into the world and die by the hands of men. Okay, that's what this word predestined tells us. This is God's plan. Jesus came, the life he lived was going to end in this death by the hands of the Romans and the Jews. Okay, so it's showing us God's plan. Here particularly it shows us God's plan for Jesus Christ. Now turn to Romans chapter 8. And this is a probably a familiar passage to us. Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8 we see the next two places that the word predestination or predestined occurs. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 and verse 30. So I'm just going to read both of these together. Probably, well, I'll read the whole thing. Verse 29, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So here it is speaking of the destiny of the believer, namely that they should be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See that in verse 29? He also predestined to the ones he foreknew, these believers, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. So here's God's plan for the believer. The goal destination of that plan, the, at the end of the path of that plan, is being conformed to the image of God's Son. And this is connected to the idea of glorification. You see that? You see how in verse 30 it begins with predestination? And what does it end with? Glorified. Glorification. So this is God's plan for the believer. Now, let's go to the next reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. It says here, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of which God ordained, that's our word predestined, which God predestined before the ages for our glory. Now here in the context, 
the wisdom of God is this mature wisdom that we see in, in verse 6. It is wisdom for mature believers. And it's this that God has predestined so that the end result is the believer's glory. It's their glory. So again, we see what is God's plan for the believer? Well, it's for them to be matured through this wisdom that is given that ultimately culminates in their glory. Now, the last two places in the Bible where this word predestined occurs is in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Two verses there. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 11. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 11. We'll take a look at verse 5 first. It says here, having predestined us, that's believers, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now this verse here reveals two things about God's plan. Number one, that the goal of this plan, the objective of this plan, is for the believer to be adopted as sons of God. So here's the believer's path. This is God's plan for the believer. And the end of it is adoption as sons of God. The second thing this verse reveals is that the means of accomplishing this plan is by Jesus Christ. It's by Jesus Christ. In other words, you have to be in Jesus Christ in order to receive this predestined plan of God, to be adopted as sons of God. Now, go down to verse 11. We see the last place in our Bibles where this word predestined occurs. It says in verse 11, In him, that's in Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, why have we obtained an inheritance? Look at the next phrase. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God's plan for the believer is to receive an inheritance. God predestined it for the believer. He laid out the path and the end of that path, the end of the course is inheritance. So this is God's plan for the believer. So when we look at this word predestined, only six verses in the Bible. One verse refers to God's plan for Christ, and five verses refer to God's plan for the believer. Now, there's other places in the Bible where we can turn to see God's plan for us as believers. There's many other places. But this is just an example how we study one word and we see God's plan for believers. And again, the point is... God's plan, what he has planned, is connected to who he is and what he is doing. He's made a plan. It's a wise plan. It's an effective plan. And God is accomplishing it. He is doing it. So now I want to go to our study for this morning. So that was just the warm-up. And that took me... Less than 15 minutes, all right? So that's just the warm-up. And now I want us to look at this study this morning in the book of Daniel. So I told you to go to the book of Daniel already, then we got off track. 
Now let's go back to the book of Daniel, and you might as well just turn to Daniel chapter 1 with me. Daniel chapter 1. Now, if we looked at every single verse in the book of Daniel that tells us something about who God is and what he's doing, we'd have 60-some points to look at, over 60-some points. So we're not going to do that. So what I've tried to do is I've just tried to take a few key passages, clumps of verses together, that have multiple points about who God is and what he's doing. And uh, beyond that, I've limited myself to just using those passages we have already studied. So we're not even going to get into the second half of the book. We're just going to limit ourselves to the first half of the book. And I think you'll find we have more than enough to chew on here for a while. And so the first place I want us to look is in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, that's Nebuchadnezzar's, hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar. Shinar. Didn't we read about Shinar already this morning in Genesis? Shinar, Nimrod, here's a connection which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Now, there's two observations I think we can make here in these two verses. First is God doesn't overlook sin. God does not overlook sin. And secondly, God uses men to accomplish his purposes, his plan. So, number one, God does not overlook sin. God gives King Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar because of his sin. And it wasn't just a single sin. It wasn't just one or two sins. It was a continual life and attitude of sin. Furthermore, the judgment that God brings on Jehoiakim here was known to be coming. God had said it is coming. God told King Hezekiah, that's Jehoiakim's great-great-grandfather. God told King Hezekiah that judgment was coming just like this, where the Babylonians would take everything that the nation had. God told Jehoiakim's great-grandfather, King Manasseh, that he was going to be judged, he and his house. Um, God paused his plan of judgment with King Josiah because King Josiah was a good king and God showed mercy on him. But Jehoiakim did not follow after his father in worshiping and serving the true and living God. Instead, he followed his grandfather and great-grandfather in totally disregarding God, doing the opposite. So here's a principle I think we see here in the fact that God doesn't overlook sin. We read in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. Now you probably know this. And if you were a believer and you had little children in your home, you probably even quoted part of this verse to them. Okay, Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. It says, but if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord and 
be sure your sins will find you out. So that's uh, one of those verses that parents always quote out of context to their children. Um, matter of fact, most of the time that it's used, it's quoted out of context. God's talking to the children of Israel and he's telling them about getting ready to go into the promised land. And he says, look, if you don't do what I say, you've sinned against me. And you're not going to get away with it. Your sins are going to find you out. Now, here's the principle we see here. God never says sins don't matter. Never says that. Um, yes, a believer can sin. God's not going to judge a believer because of sin. But God will discipline the believer to bring them back to where they should be in fellowship with him. Furthermore, sin by definition... Sin, by definition, is outside of God's plan and design for things. God did not design sin. Sin was not an original part of God's plan. And so sin is contrary to the way that God has designed things. Things... What happens when we use something for a purpose other than what it was designed for? What happens when you use a tool or something for a purpose other than what it's designed for? Things don't turn out too well, do they? Sin is the same way. When, we're, when we sin, we not only face the consequences that come from God, but there's other consequences because of what happens when we don't follow God's plan and design. There's consequences because of that. Even if you as a believer sin in private, no one else knowing you have sinned. Even when there's no immediate consequences for that sin, what happens inside of you? You know, you don't have any peace. I mean, yeah, you can ignore sin for a while. You can avoid the consequences of sin for a while. But your conscience is pricked. You're disturbed in your heart. You know what that means? It means your sins have found you out. God doesn't overlook Jehoiakim's sin, and he will not overlook our sins. That's the first thing we learn about God. He's a God that hates sin. He cannot stand before sin. Second thing we see here that we find in this verse is that God uses men to accomplish his purposes. God uses men to accomplish his purposes, his will, and his plan. In the case here, in these verses, God is using the man Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish his purpose of judgment upon Jehoiakim and Judah. So he's using a man to bring judgment to someone else. Someone else who he has warned over and over again that if you don't stop this, you're going to be judged. That man didn't stop. He didn't follow God's instructions, and therefore judgment comes. God uses men in this way. But God also uses people to accomplish good things. Think about it. Think about the good things God uses men, people, to do. Share the gospel. That's a good thing, isn't it, when you share the gospel? When you serve one another in the church, that's a good thing, isn't it? God is using people to accomplish his will and plan. Matter of fact, 
the use of people by God is such a common thing in the Bible, it's continuous and common, that we can say it is God's standard operating procedure, his SOP, to use people to accomplish his plan. Here's the thing. God wants to use you, but he's not going to force you to be used. You have to be willing. You have to be willing, but get this. You don't have to be able. You understand that? Do you understand in order for God to use you, you must be willing. But you don't have to be able. Now, why is it to be used by God, we have to be willing, but not necessarily able? Because God isn't going to force you to do anything. He doesn't force us to do things. So we have to be willing, number one. Number two, you don't need to be able because God will make you able. Think of it this way. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that every believer is given a spiritual gift. What's that spiritual gift for? It is to serve. It is to serve the church, and that's something that God has done to enable you to serve. Maybe this analogy will help. God wants us to be on his team. That's a voluntary thing, to be on his team. And then God wants us to run his place. He wants us to run his place. He has designed plays, we'll call them plans, for us, and he wants us to run them. And so one of the things that God does is he gives us a playbook, right? He gives us a playbook that we have. And he says, here's the playbook, study the playbook, run the plays. Run the plays. And he enables us to do that. He enables us to run the plays in the playbook that he has designed and planned. So we see in these two verses here, just in the first two verses of the book of Daniel, at least two things that talk about who God is and what he's done. He, he, he can't stand sin, and he uses men to accomplish his plan. Now, if we were to go on and study chapter 1 here, we would find that there's a number of other things we could talk about as far as God and what he's doing. We see in verse 9 that God works in the hearts and minds of men, even unsaved men. In verse 17, we see that God provides what is needed when it's needed. In verse 17 as well, we see that God works supernaturally, even giving supernatural abilities. Okay? But we're not going to study those. We're not going to take a hard look at those. Now I want us to go to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Verse 17 through 23. Chapter 2, verse 17 through 23. Now in these verses, there's at least nine different things that we can learn about God and what he does. But we're only going to look at five of them. Okay? We're only going to look at five of them. So if you're numbering, you're now on number three. You're now on point number three. But let me read these verses first. Verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from, God of, from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of, the, of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. Now, number three there, if you're taking notes, number three thing, the third thing that we learn about God and what he's doing is that God hears and answers prayer. God hears and answers prayer. Did you pick these phrases out as I read? That they might seek mercies from the God of heaven. Seeking mercy. That's talking about prayer. In verse 19, it said, the secret was revealed to Daniel. That's an answer to prayer. Then in verse 23, it says, and have made known to me what we asked of you. That is praying, asking, and receiving an answer. So God hears and answers prayer. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in a hard position. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he asked the wise men of the land, tell me my dream and the interpretation. Of course, nobody could do that. Nebuchadnezzar says, if you can't do it, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill all of you. And he was in the process of killing all the wise men, a group that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were a part of. And so what do they do? They pray. They go to the Lord in prayer and make a request. And the answer to that prayer comes that night. Now, we don't know how long they prayed. We don't know when they started praying, but we know the answer comes at night. And they prayed... Because they knew who God was. They knew who God was. They knew he hears and answers prayer. And so for us today, we need to understand God hears us. When we have a need and call out to God, he hears us. I think we can even say that God is listening. He is listening for us. It's almost the idea that he is waiting for us to speak to him, to ask him for things, to bring our troubles before him. God hears and listens to our prayers. We also see that not only does God hear prayers, but he answers prayers. That's something else. You see, there's two different things there. Hearing prayer is one thing. Answering prayer is something else. Sometimes when God answers our prayers, the answer doesn't come in the form we expect. Sometimes when he answers prayers, it doesn't even come in the form that we like. But God always answers his prayers in conformity to who he is and his revealed plan. So God is never going to answer a prayer that is the opposite of who he is. So if you pray to God and you ask God for something, God is the God who is just. He is never going to do anything that's unjust. 
Okay, he's never going to answer your prayer in an unjust way. Also, when we pray, we need to ask in conformity to what God has planned. God is never going to alter his plan. So if we want our prayers to be heard and answered, we should be asking God in conformity to his plan. This is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus meant when he said to his disciples, if you ask anything in my name, if you ask anything in my name, what he was saying there is, if you would ask what I would ask for, if you would ask what I would ask for, if you would ask with God's plan in mind, it's going to be answered. And so part of God hearing and answering prayer and part of us engaging and taking advantage of, hearing, of God's hearing and answering prayer is that we need to study our Bible so we understand what God's plan is and who he is so we ask in conformity to those things. And if we do that, you're guaranteed that God will answer exactly how you have asked because you have asked exactly what he wants. So that's number three, God hears and answers prayer. Number four, number four in verse 18, we see God is merciful. God is merciful. It says here, so they might seek mercies from God. They might seek mercies from the God of heaven. Now the word mercies here is not the typical word for mercy. Uh, the typical word for mercy is the idea that we might uh, think of withholding some penalty that is deserved. You know, when we think of mercy, we think of, well, we're not getting what we deserve. You know, the penalty that we deserve has been withheld. This is not the word mercy here. The, the word mercy here is an expression of affection, love, and compassion. Interestingly, the root word here is also the word that is used of a womb, a womb. So the word for mercies here is, we could translate it, wombs. And I think there's a connection here between God's affection, compassion, and love, and the love that a mother has for her children those babies that are grown in her womb. So this is, this is an expression that is used several times. Uh, we're not going to look at it, but um, you could also see this expression or, or this word mercies in chapter 1, verse 9, where it says goodwill, that's mercies. And also in chapter 9, verses 9 and 18, this word is used. And I think that the lesson we learn from God being a God of mercy is that his relationship to us, how he views us, is filled with affection, compassion, and love. You know, there is a false view of God that's going around where it sees God as an angry and wrathful God. And while it's true that God can be angry, and while it's true that he does and will show his wrath, his anger and wrath are the result of sin and sinning against him. It's not who he is in his character and nature. God's natural disposition towards us is one of mercies. 
And it's these mercies of God that makes his anger and wrath so tragic. God wants to shower us with love and affection and compassion, but he will not stand by and allow his mercies to be abused. He will not stand by and let us sin in the name of his compassion and love for us. But aren't you glad that our God is a God of mercies and loving kindness and not some irritable, angry God just up there in the sky? God is a God of mercies and he is merciful. Number five there, again, if you're taking notes, number five would be God is wise and powerful. God is wise and powerful. God is wise and powerful. This is in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the, God of, uh, blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Now notice the last phrase, for wisdom and might are his. For wisdom and might are his. So notice, wisdom belongs to God. God is wise. Wisdom belongs to him. And what is, what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge plus the appropriate application of knowledge. It is the facts, the truth, with the appropriate use of the facts and truth. That is wisdom. God not only has wisdom, wisdom belongs to him. And notice what else it says, that might also belongs to God. This is the word for power. You've heard of the word maybe El Gabor, God Almighty, the mighty God, the almighty God, El Gabor. This is the word Gabor. And God doesn't just have power. Power is his. Power belongs to him. Now, what's the difference between having power and power belonging to you? What's the difference between having power and power belonging to you. Just because you happen to have power doesn't mean that it belongs to you. You can be given power. Somebody can delegate power and authority to you. But if power belongs to you, it is yours. It's not derived. It doesn't come from another. It is your power. It's inherently a part of who you are. Power and might are God's. They belong to him. Now let's combine these two things together. That wisdom belongs to God and power belongs to God. This means that God is able to choose or plan what is right and good, and then he has the power to carry it out. And so who are we to question the wisdom and plan of God, and who are we to doubt whether he can do what he says he'll do? God has Wisdom, it belongs to him, and power belongs to him. God doesn't just have knowledge. I mean, he does have knowledge. He doesn't just have all knowledge. He also has wisdom. He's also wise. It's a part of who he is. He can make a plan, and he can accomplish it, and therefore we should trust him. Okay, I'm out of time. 
So let me just give you a couple others. I only have like seven more. Okay. In chapter 2, verse 21, this would be number six. God controls seasons and cycles and kings. God controls seasons and cycles and kings. If he's got the power to keep all of the cosmos in order and working, then he's got the power to help you. He's got the power to be effective in your life. Number seven, number seven, this is also in these verses in chapter two. Uh, God gives knowledge. God reveals knowledge and God has all knowledge. So God gives knowledge, he reveals knowledge, and he has all knowledge. Particularly, I think it's interesting that God is the revealer. God is the revealer. He reveals who he is, what he does, and his plan to us in his word. Number eight, so this is the, now I'm into chapter four, okay? So chapter four, verses 32 through 37, I'm just going to give you three more here. Chapter four, verses 32 through 37, number eight is God gives and he takes away as he pleases. He gives and he takes as he pleases. Number nine God is the one that everyone must look to for help. God is the God of help. God is the one that we have to look to for help. We can't look to anybody else. We have to look to God for our help. And finally, number 10. And actually, I have um, eight more. But we'll stop with 10. Okay. Number 10. All praise and honor are due to God. All praise and honor are due to God. So this is just some of the things we learn about who God is and what he's do doing in the world and how he's working out his plan. So this is just a brief description of the God of Daniel. So I told you at the beginning, if we went through each one of these one by one, we'd be here for a really long time. Okay, And that... that what you didn't get to this morning is the, is the parts that are just in the first four chapters of the book. Okay? And so there's a lot we can learn about who God is and what he's done. And I would encourage you, you can sit down with your Bible and you can read through it carefully. And you can mark, this tells me this about God. This tells me what God is doing, what, what he has done. So that's what we find in this description of the God of Daniel. He is the most high God. And the God of Daniel back then is our God today. So everything we learn about God in the book of Daniel applies today just as much as it applied back then because he is the same. Now I do want to take a moment to look at one more verse as we conclude because I think it's a good summary. And that's Daniel chapter four, 4, Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. Look about halfway down in this verse. Look about halfway down in the verse, and it says this. In order, 
that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. Three things we see in this verse. This is a message for the living. It's not a message for the dead. The dead already know the truth of this, but the living must learn that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men. Each succeeding generation on the earth has to learn the Most High rules over the kingdom of men. Those who are living on the earth have to recognize this God-revealed message. And they have to humble themselves to bow before the Most High God as they are living on the earth. Because there will be a time when every knee will bow. Every knee will bow to God. But when that happens, if you haven't done it while you're living, you won't be able to do it in faith once you die. You see, once you die and you're made to bow to God, you don't have a choice. You won't have a choice. You will be made to bow to God. But now in the living, those who are living must learn that God, the Most High, rules over the kingdom of men. And they must humble themselves to him in faith. And when they humble themselves to him in faith, God will save them. So this is a message for the living. Also, we see that this is a message of God's supreme position. It says the Most High rules over the kingdom of men. God is not just up there, the big man in the sky. You know, you've probably heard that expression before. Well, he's up there. He's looking down on me. Well, he is the Most High God. He is the supreme being. And it follows that all honor and praise belong to him. And so the question we have to face ourselves is, since God is the most high God, am I honoring him? Am I honoring him? Am I praising him? Uh, thirdly, we see in this verse that this is a message of God's superintendence, a message of his superintendence. It says the most high gives the kingdom of men to whoever he wants to give it to, even the lowest of men. So God's not just the most high, he's, all, he's also actively engaged in the world. He's not detached from reality, he's not the God of deism, where he's just created the world and he left it run. He's engaged in the world and he's engaged in our lives, personally engaged in each of our lives. So this is a good summary verse to what we learn about God and what he's doing here in the book of Daniel. So here we have the word of the Most High God. So we have that in our Bibles. We have his word, the word of the Most High God in our hands. Do you revere it? Do you honor it? And when I ask that question, I'm not asking, do you take care of your Bible? I'm asking, do you obey what it says? Because you can't say you honor God or you revere his word if you're not obedient to what he says. We have his word. Are we honoring it? Are we being obedient to it? Here we have the word of God, and it's not just a bunch of academic information, but it is life-changing instruction. I mean, we might study it academically if you mean 
by that, that we study it carefully and conscientiously. But we are not studying the Bible just to get information, just for an academic pursuit. We are studying the Bible because it is living and powerful. The Bible affects us. It changes us. It conforms us. It transforms us. As we read the Bible, we should be different. We should be different. We should be different from the time we read it to the time we get done reading it. As we think about it, it should change us. So here we have the Word of God, the Word of the Most High. And in this Word, we have the Most High God's plan for the future. You don't need to doubt the future. We don't need to wonder about the future. God has revealed the future to us. The validity of prophecy, history has validated prophecy. We have seen prophecies made that have been fulfilled. And if the prophecies which have been fulfilled have been fulfilled literally, then prophecies which are yet to be fulfilled will also be fulfilled literally. God has revealed the future to us. Now, with all that in mind, why don't you surrender to the Most High God? Some of us might need to surrender to him and receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. Surrender to the truth of the gospel that Christ died for your sins and was raised again on the third day. And trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. You need to surrender. Some of us might need to surrender some sin to God. Some sin that you have in your life that you're holding on to. Could be bitterness, could be anger, could be pride, anything. You know what it is. You need to surrender it to the Most High God. Some of us may have even put, in, put other things in place of God. Whatever it might be. A person, an idea, we put it in place. Of, we need to surrender that to him. We need to surrender ourselves to him. So the question is, is God the most high or not? Is the God who you say is your God, is he the most high God or not? If, if your God is the God of your own imagination, he is not the most high God. If your God is the God of the Bible, he is the most high God. And if he is the most high God by fact and in truth, then we should allow him to be the most high in our lives. Would you stand with me and we'll have a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning for the clarity of your word, even if we didn't look at everything that was planned and we're thankful that you are in fact the most high and that you rule over the kingdoms of men and not just that you rule over the kingdoms of men but you have all authority over us father help us to recognize that help us to willfully submit to you and Lord, if there's things in our lives that we need to surrender to you, things that we need to turn over to you that we can have victory in, 
things that we need to say, God, you are the most high, please help me in these different aspects of my life. I pray that we would do that today. We're so thankful that we have this privilege of having you as our most high God and that we have, as we looked at earlier, been predestined to certain things. We've been predestined to be conformed to the image of your son. We've been predestined for an inheritance and glory. And we understand that none of those things that could come to us except for what your son did on the cross. And so we thank you for him. We thank you for his work here on the earth. And we thank you for his work now in us and for us as he's at your right hand. We pray in his name. Amen.